Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When we exercise in a comfortably challenging zone, we activate the stress response. And so this repeated activation and deactivation helps to strengthen the stress response. And the really amazing thing is we only have one stress response for all stressors. So be that exercise stress or everyday stress in our life, psychological stress. And so when we tone the stress response with exercise, it benefits our stress reactivity to all stressors in life. So we're less reactive. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's podcast, I have the inspirational Dr. Jennifer Heiss, who is an expert in brain health. She directs the NeuroFit Lab, which has attracted over 1 million to support her research program on the effects of exercise for brain health. Dr. Heiss received her PhD in cognitive neuroscience and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in brain health and aging. Dr. Heiss's research examines the effects of physical activity on brain function to promote mental health and cognition in young adults, older adults, and individuals with Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Heiss has been widely recognized and honored around the world for her work in this area. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? Enjoy the journey. <laughs> this seems to be a really resonant quote in my life and brings me back to the present moment to really enjoy the journey, be mindful, be grateful for what you have, and certainly a big part of my life. Do you find yourself someone who looks ahead? If that's the quote that resonates the most, mm. has there been parts of your life where that hasn't been the case, where you've, you mm. haven't been as present as you are now? Oh, I mean, it's a daily, weekly struggle. <laughs> and part of the problem is it's the brain's default state to mm -hmm. kind of wander around, to go to the past and go to the future. And uh, we really have to work on being in the present. This was something I struggled with for many years, actually. How do we be in the present but be visionary mm -hmm. and plan for the future? I realized that you can actually set aside time where you plan for the future. And that's where it happens. You know, it doesn't have to happen all the time. And things like, surprisingly, things like exercise can actually help us be more in the present moment. Exercise and movement are correlated with mindfulness, mindfulness as a trait within people, and not just yoga or tai chi, the sort of classic things we think about, but all kinds of movement, even running the attention to the body, the attention to the breath, it really helps to ground the mental processes we have and support our mental health. 
Yes, absolutely. I think all of us need reminding of that. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? Enjoy the simple things in life. Don't take them for granted because here I'm in Canada and right now it's fall and the colors are just so beautiful and enjoying them, appreciating them, being out in nature is just, it's such a wonderful experience, a wonderful feeling. And if we get so busy and caught up in our life, our day-to-day life, we miss those things and they really bring a lot of joy to life. They're so simple, but they can bring a lot of joy. And so the trees, the color of the trees have reminded me some things in life are really simple, but really profound. That's such a nice, again, reminder for all of us to look outside the next time we're out there. How do you understand the soul? Oh, this is an interesting question to a scientist. (laughs) But I have done a lot of thinking and reflecting on what that means. And I see that our essential being, which I think is the soul of every person, which is just pure energy, pure light. And it's the same pure light and energy in each person, each living thing, everything that exists. And it connects us intimately and perfectly. And the body, the brain, is just a casing that we have to experience the world, which is really amazing. It allows us to sense and perceive and communicate and hug and touch and, you know, all the wonderful, amazing things that we get to do in this life. Um, But at the core of it all, it's that light, that energy that we all share. That's a really beautiful answer. Thank you. So I'm dying to move on to your book, uh, Move the Body, Heal the Mind. When I started reading it, you very honestly share your route to how exercise was pivotal in you actually healing from a situation that you were in. Would you mind sharing a bit about that and how exercise became such a companion for you when life was changing a lot for you? Yeah, so it was um, in my 20s. I was in graduate school and studying neuroscience. So I was doing my PhD. And it was a pretty, it's a pretty stressful time, you know, 20s. <laughs> what are you going to do with the rest of your life? There's an incredible pressure on, on young people. And what happened was that the stress of the situation had started to aggravate some mental health issues that I had. I started to experience like intrusive thinking, like intrusive thoughts that didn't reflect my personality at all. Some pretty severe anxiety that caused. And at the time, I wasn't really active. I was pretty much a sedentary student. (laughs) And um, I went to the doctor's office and they promptly handed me an antidepressant. And I really didn't want to take it. I didn't want to be medicated uh, for this. (laughs) And so a friend recommended that I try cycling and I try this road bike. And so Uh, miraculously, after a few rides, the cycling really had soothed my mind. And it created just a profound shift, not just in my personal life, in such a healing way for me personally, but also professionally. So I sort of switched gears away from 
fundamentals of neuroscience and into more how does exercise change the brain to give us all these incredible benefits. Now, I usually like to preface the antidepressant use. I mean, some people don't have the luxury of choice because their symptoms are pretty severe and the medication really helps them. And the beautiful thing is exercise can be used as an adjunctive or add-on therapy that can help reduce some of the side effects that come with antidepressant drug use. This brings me, I guess, directly onto the discussion of exercise being an amazing tool in managing the mind and the research you've done to prove that. What, I guess, is happening in the brain when we exercise? Why is exercise so impactful when we are trying to become more resilient, when we're trying to remove ourselves from anxiety or stress? I mean, most of us have been told exercise is good, and yet we don't really know why. Yeah, well, the brain and body evolved at a time when we needed to move to survive. And so it's actually a vital part of our health and well-being. We don't need to do it now. We can get in a car and drive wherever we need to go. And so we've we've sort of engineered out our our reliance on exercise. But in this sort of evolutionary perspective, the brain actually needs exercise to be well, to thrive. It needs the oxygenated blood flow to go to things like the prefrontal cortex to help us focus and concentrate and be creative. And then it stimulates all these neurotrophic factors, these growth factors that promote the birth and functioning of brand new brain cells that can help us create new memories and richer memories in higher detail. They also release all these uh, neurotransmitters that help the brain function optimally, um, including dopamine and serotonin, which help with reward, feelings of reward, as well as feelings of calm. It does so many things all at once. And it's in that acute phase, like immediately following exercise, when you're just, your brain is bathed in all of these beautiful neurochemicals. And it just brings such a a peace and solace to you, your mind and your body. What I found really interesting is you actually dive into why we resist exercise. I thought this was fascinating because it makes sense for why we resist change in a general sense too. So you write, the brain wants us to stay the same. And I would love to know, why does the brain want us to stay the mm -hmm. same? And why do we resist something that is so good for us? It makes no sense. <laughs> well, back to our evolutionary past and thinking about the time when humans evolved, it was very different. And we needed to expend a lot of energy to hunt and gather our food. And so when we weren't moving to survive, we needed to really conserve energy. And so because the brain is so good at energy conservation, it essentially now makes us lazy. <laughs> and so it sees voluntary exercise that we do today as an extravagant expense. And it goes out of its way to try to prevent you from doing it. Like, you, you know the talk in your head, oh, we're too tired. We don't have time. Its rebuttals are relentless, and it comes back to this want to conserve energy. The other reason why exercising is hard is because it is stressful. It's an energetic stressor. It activates the stress response, and 
it pushes us outside of our homeostatic happy place. Now, this can be really good. And this is one of the benefits of exercise is it pushes us outside of our comfort zone and allows us to adapt and grow into stronger versions of ourselves. However, we need to be careful not to go too far too fast or it can cause uh, the opposite effect. It can cause this thing we call allostatic load where it's too much stress for the body and the body and mind weaken rather than strengthen. So it's not your fault. If you haven't been moving much lately, it's not your fault. We have all these barriers sort of built into us that that make it more difficult. But there are some cool tricks and tips you can do to get over that and to reassure your lazy brain things are going to be okay and it's not going to be too stressful. So, I mean, first of all, one of the biggest barriers people find is time. They don't have enough time to exercise. But if you really do look at your schedule, you probably have time. You just haven't really blocked it off for exercising. And so creating these like exercise appointments ahead of time, including as much detail as possible, like what you're going to do, where, when, and with whom. This takes all the guesswork out of it at the time of, and this saves your brain power, your willpower, so you have more to put towards exercise. There's some other really interesting tricks too. I talk about them in the book, but one of my favorite ones is this swish and spit. <laughs> so like the the brain is lazy because it's worried that resources are sparse. And this idea of taking a sip of a sugary drink, swishing it around in your mouth, you don't even have to drink it. You can just spit it right out. And the idea is that the presence of sugar in the mouth reminds or reassures the lazy brain resources are plenty and it's okay if we move a little bit. I think at the point is it is hard to be active and we need to really set ourselves up for success and it might involve a little bit of extra effort. <laughs> I love those little hacks. I mean, who would have thought having, I don't know, a bite of a cookie would actually get you to exercise um, when you don't want to. I guess so much about exercise is what we believe exercise to be. And when we're little, I think we can develop unhealthy beliefs about exercise. If you're forced to go out and run when you're little and you hate mm -hmm. running, you then just have this belief that I'm terrible at running. That was embarrassing. This is not for me. And then, you know, you're vulnerable of having a completely sedentary life based on these uncomfortable childhood experiences. What are your thoughts to that. How can we build a better mm -hmm. relationship with exercise? Yeah. And I, I've had that experience. I mean, when I was younger, I struggled to, I always wanted to be a runner. I struggled to run. I think my mom had said, you know, oh, it's just not in our genetics. Yeah. We don't <laughs> Which was not true and is not true. But I think it really underscores that we do need to have so much more compassion and self-love for ourselves. And that Exercise isn't supposed to be a punishment, but a way that we can care for ourselves, an outlet for stress, time for ourselves, a break from technology, mm. and conceptualizing it more around self-care rather than work and punishment, mm. I think is a really important shift, especially for people who've had negative experiences in the past, because that negativity creates like fear, anxiety, that's not the point. You know, we don't want to make things worse for people. And perhaps 
if there was, say, for example, a sport that sort of triggers a bit of a trauma for you, then maybe try some different activity or try that activity, but do it in a safe space with people that you love and in a space that you feel comfortable. And then just slowly, gradually incorporate more of that into your life. And it will work kind of like an exposure therapy where you try out that exercise that was slightly uncomfortable, just in a like a, a bite-sized bit. And then you feel it and you realize, wait a sec, I'm actually okay. <laughs> this is okay. And the more you return to that, the more you experience that feeling of okay, the less power that fear and that worry, anxiety, trauma has over you. One research study that you write that this one was one of the largest studies that has ever been done on exercise. I think it was 33,000 people were studied. And 12 years later, they looked at who out of 33,000 developed depression and those who didn't. And those that exercised were less likely to have experienced depression. Would you mind talking to us a bit more about this research study and what we can take from it? It was a really cool study that tracked people, yeah, for 15 years or more, actually. What they did at the beginning was they had people recount how much stress they had in their life, like whether the day their day of the week was stressful or not stressful, and how it made them feel. And then they took a blood measure to measure for markers of inflammation. So what they found was that on stressful days, it was harder for people to be happy, which is not too surprising. But the real surprising part was that people differed in how they reacted to stressful versus non-stressful days. Um, some people reacted with like dramatic mood swings, so feeling their highest highs on good days and their lowest lows on bad days. And some people were just a little bit more even keeled. Um, and they found that those people with the biggest mood swings, they had the most inflamed bodies. So like that's an indication of like the health of the body is sort of compromised. And then I think it was 10 years later, those same individuals with that mood swing were more likely to have developed depression or anxiety, really indicating and demonstrating the power of these sort of everyday stressors on the body and the mind. And it's important to note that this is not like major trauma that they were tracking here. It was just like everyday stressors, like having an argument with a friend, having an argument with a family member, facing a deadline at work, facing discrimination. And it's these everyday stressors and our reaction to them that really start to erode both our physical and our mental health. And how was exercise proven to be an intervention? Because I think that's what I found so interesting about the research is how impactful exercise was in influencing how stressed or depressed people were. Yeah, so there's a few different ways that exercise works to help buffer the effects of stress. One of them is related to, you know, pushing us outside that comfort zone. And sort of when we exercise in a comfortably challenging zone, we activate the stress response. It gets pushed out of our comfort zone. But then once we stop exercising, it comes back down to baseline. And so this repeated 
activation and deactivation helps to strengthen the stress response, almost like lifting a weight, you know, activate the weight, flex your muscle, deactivate, relax. We can tone our stress response using exercise. And the really amazing thing is we only have one stress response for all stressors. So be that exercise stress or everyday stress in our life, psychological stress. And so when we tone the stress response with exercise, it benefits our stress reactivity to all stressors in life. So we're less reactive and so less moody, less likely to be inflamed and develop depression and anxiety. The other way that exercise works to help combat the effect of stress is that it's anti-inflammatory. So at first, a cute bout of exercise is a little bit inflammatory. So this is a protective mechanism to protect us while we're we're outside of that homeostatic happy place, that comfort zone. But as soon as we stop exercising, what happens is the muscles release these myokines that help clean up all that inflammation from exercise and then some so that eventually when you repeatedly exercise consistently over time, your body becomes significantly less inflamed. So it really takes out that inflammation. I'm just always completely shocked by how critical exercise is. And I feel that it's not presented to us culturally in this way. You know, it's Mm -hmm. used often to shame people or you have this disparity between, you know, the gym bunnies that are off running as if it doesn't feel uncomfortable at all. And so if you're not there, it feels miles away. And yet, if we understood more of the neurochemical impact exercise has, we'd be congratulating ourselves for just the smallest amount of exercise that we introduced into our life. And I think this is what your book does so well. Yeah. And the research on, in particular, depression shows that every step counts. So you don't have to go and run a marathon. It can be just getting up off the couch and out the door and around the block and doing that at a walking leisurely pace. It really is every step counts. And we see this dramatic drop off in depressive symptoms. And like you said at the opening, I had the same reaction as you, this like, you're kidding, like exercise is on par with antidepressant drugs? Like, what? We often think of these like pharmacotherapies as like the panacea, like the cure-all, right? And unfortunately, it's not the case with antidepressant drugs. And one in three people actually don't even respond to these drugs. It doesn't help them. It doesn't relieve their depressive symptoms. And the really powerful research shows that in people who don't respond, those drug-resistant forms of depression, they actually respond better to exercise. And they get clinically significant, meaningful effects from moving their body. And I think just that's such a powerful message that that we just need to get out there. People need to realize how effective exercise is at promoting mental health and reducing things like depression and anxiety. To me, it's a really empowering message. And I guess some of the myths you clear up is you don't need to go for a 10 kilometer run. Actually, you talk about stand-up breaks. What are stand-up breaks and why why are they effective? Right. So it's simple. Most of us, most of the day, we're just sitting, right? We're sitting in front of our computer. And what ends up happening is when we sit for prolonged periods of time, 
the brain gets essentially starved of it, the vital nutrients it needs. Like blood flow is not as vigorous. It doesn't get as much oxygenated blood flow and glucose that it needs to really function optimally. And so these stand-up breaks can really help to just break up sedentary time. And they are as simple as they sound. <laughs> really, you just stand up. You can walk around if you have an office or walk down the hall, get a glass of water, walk around your kitchen. The point is just to stand up, to break up that sedentary time. And short, frequent breaks seem to be the best. So every 30 minutes, get up for about just a two-minute break. It can just be like a simple stretch, a stand-up, a walk around. And this increases the oxygenated blood flow to the brain so that you can work more efficiently and optimally. And so you may think taking breaks is counterproductive, but no, no, it will help you work even better. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You write that walking an hour a day can counteract eight hours of sitting. Obviously, because of certain companies, the 10,000 step thing a day has become quite popular. And from what I understand, there isn't very much research saying that 10,000 steps are neither good or bad. But what is the research around one hour a day counteracting eight hours of sitting? Because I feel that in a way that's a bit more achievable. If you've had an eight hour day in an office, mm -hmm. some of us may be able to then implement that extra one hour of walking you know, sedentary behavior, sitting for too long is associated with really pretty scary outcomes, actually like premature death, dementia. It's not good for the brain to sit so long. Mm -hmm. And this research that you're talking about showed that some of us have to sit for eight hours. Yeah. We don't have the choice. But if we can walk, and in that study, it seemed to be around one hour of a brisk, moderate walk, that it counteracted the negative effects that that had. So the point is, I think every step does count with mental health. And these, these short, intermittent breaks will help counteract that prolonged sitting because you wouldn't be sitting for eight hours. You're breaking it up mm. a little bit every time. You have really focused on uh, brain health and aging and obviously exercise being essential intervention in that. What surprises you or continues to surprise you about your research in aging and what can we all be doing now to ensure that we live healthy, long lives? One of the surprising findings we've come across was Physical inactivity contributes to your dementia risk as much as your genetics. Wow. So we often think about like dementia and brain health diseases as being sort of fixed or passed on through generations. But 
really has a lot to do with our lifestyle, which is positive because we can control that, right? Like we can increase our fitness or increase our activity level. And dementia is associated with aging. So our risk increases with aging. Certainly doesn't mean as we get older, we're going to get it. That's not true. But the risk increases as we get older. However, the things we do now when we're younger really impact, they essentially lay the foundation for brain health later in life. And one study found that our fitness level in particular is a strong predictor of whether we're going to, our risk of dementia later in life. And some really great research, this is also around kind of the accessibility of exercise and meeting people where they are. The benefits of walking here seem to be really profound. And in particular, a a specific type of walking called interval walking, Mm -hmm. which is essentially like doing your regular walk, but intermittently like picking up the pace or adding a few hills to your walking route so that your heart rate and breathing rate increase to the point where it's like difficult to have a conversation. Like you can get out a few words, but it's difficult to have a conversation. And the reason this seems to be beneficial is because when we're exercising in sort of that anaerobic zone, the muscles are working hard and they accumulate lactate. And lactate in the muscles actually, it spills out into the blood And that lactate travels from the blood to the brain. It reports to this brain region called the hippocampus, and it stimulates the birth of brand new brain cells. Like it grows brains. (laughs) So it's amazing how you can go from the muscle and something like lactate, which we, we typically associate with like negative stuff, like burning of the muscles. But it seems to be this really profound promoter of neuroplasticity. So do you suggest people should be doing therapy while exercising because their brain would be more malleable in, I don't know, creating new neural pathways or new reactions to old stimuluses and stuff like that? Yeah, 100%. I think there there could be different ways to work on that too because if we think about, you know, therapy is often trying to break down old ways of thinking and create like new perspective. That's one thing. And exercise is really beneficial at promoting creativity Mm. or divergent thinking. So if we did a self-paced 10 minute walk before our therapy session, Mm. we might be more open to and receptive to new ideas. It also helps when we do this low intensity exercise, it releases this neuropeptide called neuropeptide Y, which is essentially a resiliency factor that soothes the brain and protects it from traumatic experiences. So if we were to do that self-paced walk, we would be more open and potentially even more calm and less defensive, which would probably help us be more receptive to the learning. And then in terms of this neuroplasticity and creating new, new brain cells and new connections, you know, the exercise would help us form new pathways, new associations, new healthier ways of thinking about the world. And that would help consolidate that information. So yeah, you're right. It should be hand in hand and that there's these, you know, the psychotherapy or the neuropsychologists should be 
having these sessions, either while they're moving or incorporating movement, it would probably speed up a lot right. of a lot of the processes. I've recently started to research into psychedelics, and I feel like mm-hmm. what people advocate that psychedelics do in helping a therapeutic experience is almost what exercise could do as well, in many ways. Yes. I love that you say that because I've been thinking about it the same way. It's like a reset for the brain, as I understand it. I mean, the science is still coming out. It seems to have a a large effect, especially for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder Mm. or traumas that they're difficult to unlock. Also, things like mindfulness meditation or mindfulness movement I think it could also have a similar effect where it's like you're intensely present in the moment Mm. and you're sensing things very acutely, which is what these uh, drugs do to the brain a lot of the time. And so it's an intensive, mindful session. I'm excited to follow the science around this and and really see the parallels because I, I do believe there are parallels and then exercise is already available so <laughs> and mindfulness too. So we don't need to necessarily wait for the science of the psychedelics to catch up. We already have these tools available for us now. The neuropeptide Y, I hadn't actually come yes. across that before. And I think actually it'd be quite interesting for people to hear more about that because how you are explaining it in your writing, comparing two soldiers mm-hmm. experiencing the same thing and perhaps the only difference between them was the amount of this neuropeptide. Would you mind sharing a bit more about that? Yeah, so this is sort of how it's been linked to protecting the brain against trauma is that in veterans, war veterans, some of them will come back with post-traumatic stress disorder from the trauma of war, but not everybody does. And trying to understand these individual differences, researchers looked at neuropeptide Y, and the ones who had more of it in their brains were protected They had protected themselves. Even though they experienced the same trauma in war, they were less likely to be affected by post-traumatic stress disorder. So it seems to be like this protective buffer against really stressful events. It can help protect the brain against not just trauma, but also anxiety, developing anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. And exercise is a mechanism to increase your level of this neuropeptide. Right. Yes. So there's um, the research still is emerging, but there was one study that showed that light exercise caused an immediate increase in neuropeptide Y that lasted about 30 minutes after the workout. So Mm. you can imagine this like window where there's just calm in the brain immediately after exercise when you don't have any more, you know, it's like a break from the stress in your life. And that peace and calm, the more you return to exercise, the more opportunity you have to experience that, which I think is a really powerful form of therapy. So the question that I then had after reading this was why can we not supplement with this neuropeptide? Why is exercise still important when I guess science can look at all the benefit that exercise gives us from a neurochemistry perspective and just give us Mm -hmm. a pill for it? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. Why can't we come up with like an exercise pill that just does all these amazing <laughs> things and then we'll just take the pill and be done with it? <laughs> I mean, that would be great, you know, it's on some days for sure, but it just doesn't work that way. And mm. I think partly it's because the body and mind are so complex mm. and they're so tightly regulated that when we take a drug or a supplement, they could be elevating it to supernatural levels, mm. which may not be in balance with the rest of the systems. And so exercise, because it's internally generated, is in synchrony all of with all of these complicated systems. And it's just able to like give it exactly what it needs, not more or less, so that it can heal and thrive. So I really think that's a big part of it is that it's sort of the internal medicine that's already been fine-tuned to be the best that the body needs. But there's also this other stuff that comes with exercise, right? Like the friendships that you can form yeah. and the social part, which for many people this is – this is a huge piece of, of the motivation, of the enjoyment of exercise. And, you know, something we really noticed over the pandemic was that that was missing, mm. you know, just the being together in action. Yeah, it's such an important piece to the whole brain health because loneliness is a huge factor for, you know, mental health and even dementia. And so exercise can be this really nice common ground where we can meet people that we may not have that much in common with and form a friendship based on our common interest in we like to move our bodies in the same way. <laughs> I find that with yoga classes, right? You attend the same yoga class with a few strangers and suddenly you're friends. <laughs> You obviously have focused a lot on the aging brain, but you also have covered some really interesting research around what happens when we teach young people about exercise, especially within students. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit, a bit more about that? Because I thought it was really interesting, the anti-drug campaign compared to the promoting well-being campaign and the results that then happened afterwards. Yes. Oh, I, I was shocked by this study, actually. So this study was looking at what's the best ways to protect our kids from experimenting with drugs? How can we protect them? And most of us are familiar with anti-drug campaigns, right? Don't do drugs. They are bad for you. <laughs> and this one study compared like that sort of standard campaign, that anti-drug campaign with a healthy living education session where students learned how to take care of their bodies and their minds, which included physical activity. And then they followed these kids over a few years, and they found that the ones who were in the healthy wellness uh, education program were less likely to experiment with drugs than the ones in the anti-drug campaign. <laughs> so it, it really underscores, I mean, a few things. First of all, if you tell a young person what not to do, like it just doesn't go well, right? <laughs> They're like, oh, curious. Why am I not allowed to do this? But if you teach them how to be, you know, caretakers of their body, that's really empowering for them. And they can move their body in ways that feel good for them. And then when we exercise, it supplies the developing brain with a lot of the dopamine that it 
it needs and craves, especially as the brain is developing, dopamine is such a craver and it supplies it with that so that it doesn't have to seek dopamine in unhealthy places like illicit drugs or alcohol. I just wished more governments around the world were exposed to this sort of research because our education system might look very different. And as a consequence, the future careers of all of these young people may look very different and lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Just to move back to your research on age and brain health, you talk a lot about how stereotyping actually can have a huge impact on how someone ages Mm -hmm. and how dangerous that can be. What can we do to change the impact of this? And what does stereotype threat mean? Yeah, so stereotype threat, it's like a negative belief about a certain group. Like, so with aging, for example, you may have this stereotype that older people are slow. And then as you get older, you still hold that stereotype and then you become old And that now becomes a self-stereotype, which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, or Mm. can be, where if you're reminded of your age, you may just slow down to fulfill this biasy, this stereotype, or you may not try certain things because you're afraid you're too slow. So it's this self-limiting belief based on a preconceived notion that may or may not be true, actually. And I mean, I talk about it related to aging, but it could be related to many different groups of people. If there's this stereotype that someone has internalized, it can really be self-limiting when it probably shouldn't be. How do we change that? How do we help people Mm-hmm. re-stereotype aging and stay active for longer. I remember in one book, someone says, live like Mick Jagger, because Mick Jagger <laughs> is obviously still singing and dancing, and I'm not sure how old he is. But how can we help those around us to stay active, change their understanding of what being older means, and how do we change our own? I think things are changing already, but it really isn't. It's like a opinion and bias that is... It could be pervasive, in some cases, pervasive in our culture and in our society. And so just by having an open opinion, a diverse opinion, and knowing that everybody is an individual and they will age at different rates and it will have a different impact on their abilities and functions and as is true for different groups of people. You know, we we tend to have these quick and dirty rules of like stereotypes that we apply to people, but that's to the group. And we need to n- remind ourselves that each individual person is their own, their own being that that has their own unique things that, and we shouldn't necessarily assume that they match this. And I think just kind of checking our own biases can really help reduce that threat. Lastly, how do you wind down? Because you have a family, you have a really exciting work life. What does winding down look like for you? I like to have a cup of tea. (laughs) And often I, I like to do some Tai Chi, some stretching, some breathing, something mindful, you know, where it's just 
a quiet wind down. And then I, I like to kind of clean up actually. Really? <laughs> Put everything back in their own place. <laughs> oh my gosh you're the dream mm-hmm. to live with I wish I had <laughs> I wish I had that ability and will you do that before you go to bed sort of thing yeah just before I go to bed I'll sort of shut things off you know put everything in their place and then you know do some breathing exercises and calmly go to bed <laughs> I have to say that's quite inspiring yeah. actually maybe I should adopt some of that putting the world to rest before you do oh I like the way you uh, <laughs> conceptualize that <laughs> um Dr Jennifer thank you so much for your time I have loved talking all about your fascinating work um where is the best place for people to find you and learn more and ask you any questions if they have them My book, Move the Body, Heal the Mind, it's available anywhere books are sold. Um, You can learn more about me and my journey around the book was uh, at Jennifer Heist, H-E-I-S-Z dot com, or uh, you can visit my lab at neurofitlab.ca. I'm on Twitter at Jennifer Heiss and on Instagram at Dr. Jennifer Heiss. And um, yeah, I would love to engage in a conversation with your listeners. Perfect. Well, we'll put all of those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.